Welcome to The John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of WorthPoint LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of WorthPoint. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. What does it look like to be indispensable in your organization? Someone your coworkers look up to, someone your boss values your input and, and perspective and is frankly worried about losing you? Well, hey everyone, it's John Chapman. And today we're talking about what it means to have a, a personal brand with my special guest, Nick Rathel, the creator of the seven hour book. And we talk about this competitive environment and how both entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs can work in such a way that goes just beyond performing a function, but is really having an impact. And why is this relevant on a personal finance podcast? Well, as we've talked about before, you know, it's hard enough to save and build your investments. It's actually even harder to keep them. But the same can also be true about the asset of your personal brand. And just given the shifts and dynamics of the workforce, and really people working from home now in COVID-19, and just millions of people seeking employment, it kind of now goes without saying just how crucial it is to think about your value that you're bringing and the context of your brand and the goals that you have for your career. So before we continue, just make sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss anything. You can leave a comment or a rating and you can also reach out to me at thejohnchapmanshow at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback. But uh, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, hey, everyone. It's John Chapman. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. What does it look like to be indispensable at work? Uh, someone your coworkers value, someone your boss is worried about losing, and like where your words and your actions have an impact? Well, today we're talking with Nick Rathel, the creator of the seven hour book about what it means to be indispensable. So, Nick, thanks for joining us today. John, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Nick, you and I were talking previously about this idea of being indispensable. So give us some context. Where does the word indispensable come from? So the word indispensable, I think for our purposes today, really originates with a book by Seth Godin, who's a pretty renowned marketing expert and strategist. And he wrote a book many years back called Lynchpin, with the central point of that book being, are you indispensable in whatever capacity you're serving? whether independently or in an organization. So I think that really would be the starting point from looking at that word indispensable. Tell us a little bit about, for those that haven't read the book, some of the main premise. Uh, what was the lead up to Seth even just writing the book to begin with? So the lead up is the fact that as technological changes happen, as we shift increasingly into a society where you need to carve out your space in your organization, there is this need then to be a linchpin to be someone who matters, not just matters in the sense of human life, but actually matters in the functions of the organization and who can't be easily upset by market disruptions. So with that in mind, and particularly now, relating it to the disruptions we're seeing with the COVID-19 virus, it seems more important than ever to really be indispensable and have your space to know why you exist in an organization, not just personally, but for your employers and the people you're working with to be able to look at you and understand, okay, here's where this person fits into our organization. And if an economic downturn comes, 
we can't necessarily let this person go because the, of the role they're specifically satisfying for us and because they are indispensable. You're right, especially in light of COVID and some employers and employees might be impacted maybe regardless of, of some of their attributes or their space, but still generally this essence of being a person that is just indispensable within your organization is so relevant. And it's amazing that Seth wrote this book back in 2011, what a pioneer of this, to thinking ahead so much. I often have conversations with my father about Seth's idea here where we've gone through this, this just incredible shift through the industrial age. Like this is no longer the Henry Ford factories of the world. I mean, he did a lot for the world in terms of getting more process and efficiencies in order. But just given the fact that we've got the internet and technology, we're moving away from that. But there's still so much muscle memory from the industrial age. And our public school system is still based off of this old world of making people fit into the mold, so to speak. So I find that there's just probably, there's so much, even for me, as I've gone through my career journey, I feel like there's so much friction to employers and employees adopting this way of thinking. So I guess, what is Seth not saying? If you think about somebody being indispensable, I can understand somebody feeling, hearing what you're saying, Nick, and like, oh, that's scary for me. Does that mean I have to start my own job or things like that? Is this going to be the four-hour work week? How do we wrap our minds around what Seth is not saying about being indispensable? I think a good place to start there would be thinking about it in terms of not breaking away, but being an intrapreneur. And I believe that's a term I've heard referring to people who are entrepreneurial, but are within an organization. So they may still have innovative ideas. They may still, quote unquote, do their own thing, but they're firmly happy and satisfied with their company and good for them too. So they're being linchpins within the organization and innovating without turning their back on the organization and trying to go off and really risk it all. Do you have any examples to point to of people that might be linchpins, but within their organization, people working as entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think a good place to start would be, I, I don't know if he is still there, but there's a fellow in the tech space, uh, Matt Cutts over at Google. And maybe that's a dated reference. Again, I don't know if he's still at Google, but quite a while ago, I remember seeing his videos. He had a series of videos. Maybe he's updated them where he comes on and talks about the latest Google updates and the latest search engine optimization trends and Google's stance on those. And being the face of Google in those instances, Matt has really made himself indispensable to the organization. And just to point a comment, that wasn't his job description prior to the fact. You're saying he just took it upon himself to be creating that content and putting it out there? Well, without knowing him personally, that's what it seems like. In yeah. terms of other examples, though, there are definitely people who will even do something as simple as getting out in front of their organization to speak at a local meetup event. If you're in a particular city or a town and there's a meetup event for your industry, whatever your company is in, whatever industry that is, and you take the initiative to go to that meetup and be like, hey, I'm going to be the expert here speaking on a particular topic that's relevant to the meetup's group members. That might be another way of just being the linchpin because then your superiors at work, your coworkers see you taking that initiative. They see you representing the company positively, going beyond your pay grade and really proving that you are indispensable. 
I think that's important because what I want for this conversation is for those listening to feel like not only have they may have shifted their frame of reference, but also know some of the things they can participate in to help them. So I really want to get into Nick here in just a couple of minutes talking about what employees can be doing if they're adopting this frame of reference. But maybe just before going there, I want to pause and talk a little bit about your background and your unique perspective in this and really just why does this topic matter so much to you? Sure. So in terms of why it matters to me, I'm looking at this through the standpoint of one particular medium that people have used to make themselves linchpins in their organizations. And that medium that I'm looking at it from is with books. So my background with books is in creating a system called the seven-hour book. And it eliminates time as an excuse for people to not put a book out. And looking at books through that sense, we've been working with various people at organizations who are entrepreneurs and then also entrepreneurs as well to help them carve out their space and become thought leaders. So that's really the perspective I'm looking at it from. And certainly books are one way to do it, but it could also be, as we mentioned a moment ago, with speaking at a local meetup event, it could be with coming on a great podcast like this one and conveying your expertise and your authority. As a podcast speaker, it could be through taking the initiative to do your company's blog posts. And I know that there are plenty of law firms, for example, out there where people who might be a paralegal even, and it's not in their job role, they're not not in their job description, they're the ones who take the initiative to write the blogs for the company. Many instances like that. You bring up a good point, and that is uh, books is one medium but there could be things like a podcast or blogs or speaking uh, at events. If we ever go back to live events, being hosting a podcast. So there's so many different mediums, but just given your expertise, Nick, within the book writing space, maybe we can spend a little bit of time talking through that, especially for those that maybe there are some people out there that thought, wow, it'd be really cool if I could write a book, but I just have no idea how I'm ever going to do that. That's going to take years and I don't have an editor and I just don't really have the time. Maybe others are thinking, I've really never considered a book. I have no idea what that would do for me. So talk to me about the impact that a book can have in making somebody indispensable. One of the ways that it impacts is in quite literally the sense of impacting. When you think about a book, especially a book that's upwards of 150 pages or more, even 200, 250, when you put it down on someone's desk, it has what I like to call the thud factor in that it literally thuds and impacts on their desk. And psychologically, that is much different than a blog post. Nothing against blog posts, nothing against Twitter tweets, nothing against any electronic content. But when you literally have something physical, that instantly is going to convey a tremendous level of authority for you and credibility for you and really bolster your efforts to become a linchpin like that. So that would be one of the things. And then I think just for the benefit of your audience as well, I would say if people are considering a book, a great place to start for those who think I could never do a book, what would even be about is just to think really about what makes you, you. Think about all of the stories and experiences that you've had Think about as well the anecdotes that you find yourself repeatedly telling when you're in groups professionally and in groups socially with friends. And certainly, if there are anecdotes or stories or lessons that you're sharing on a continued basis like that, 
then those could end up going into the book. So that might be a good place to start. That's a great point as I want to be able to talk about how you talk with folks about who are creating a book or whatever that medium is, how they think about their own personal story and their own value proposition, if I can call it that. Because my hunch is that a lot of people are scared to talk about themselves. Heck, even the I was talking to somebody the other day who had lost their job and they were in the process of finding a new job and just having a resume to talk about some of the things that you've worked on and accomplished. I mean, these are small sentences and that came with a a big amount of friction. So to imagine writing a 150 page book seems like it could be a lot. So how do you help people start to think about talking about themselves in a way that uh, doesn't feel so awkward? Well, one of the things that helps with not making it awkward is determining initially whether a book is the best medium and the best means for you. Because if it really is awkward for you truly to do a book, then you might just be better off starting a podcast. If that's more in line with who you are personally, more in line with your personality, your goals, then a podcast or a YouTube channel or whatever, insert the name of you know, the, the latest app, Snapchat, you know, Meerkat, exactly, <laughs> any, any of those. The, if those are more what makes you feel comfortable and you're not as, quote, awkward with those, then by all means. But if you think about it and you realize, you know what? A lot of this is in my head as opposed to what I'm actually more comfortable with. And if you decide that a book in that sense could make more sense, then I think it comes back again to what makes you unique. It comes back as well to your goals. And with goals, we could go into, for example, thinking about what your goals are in your organization. If you're working for a particular big company, do you want to do a book that's going to move you closer and further along on the management track, if that's where you're looking to go in your organization, then if that was the goal, your book might be designed to show instances of leadership on your part or understand, convey an understanding by you of how leadership works, of how companies work, of management principles like that. So you can really design the book to fit your goals within an organization or if you're an entrepreneur, pure entrepreneur, design the book for client attraction, design the book to get you speaking engagements to further establish your thought leadership. I mean, we're talking about Seth Godin. How many books has he written? <laughs> I've lost track. You probably as well, John, the guy just keeps putting out books and those keep further bolstering him as a linchpin in the marketing conversation. Something you bring up though, is talking about what your goal is. And I know in my financial planning practice, sometimes talking about goals can also fall flat. And so that's a really interesting thing where people may think they have goals, but you know, it's one thing to have them in your head. And it's another thing to be forced to think about it and to consider what just maybe one or two or even five or 10 years off into the future looks like. Do you have any suggestions for the people that are thinking about their corporate career? They're thinking, I'm not sure what my goals are. How do I work through that process? A way to approach that would be to do what they talk about in another really good book, Beyond Lynchpin, The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papazan. What they talk about in that book, one of the principles is, well, there's the book's title, The One Thing, to focus on your one thing. But they also introduce a really cool concept called goal setting to the now. And with that, the idea is that you think about where you want to be in 
let's say five years or even 10 years, if you're truly thinking ahead, and then you steadily, slowly but surely piece back to the present. So if you're in a company to make this actionable and applicable for your listeners, if you're in a company and you want that corner office, so to speak, within the next five years, think about, okay, you want that corner office, what comes before that? Maybe the corner office right now is one of the managing directors at your company. Before the managing director, what's the role? Then before that, what's the role? And even in cases where there isn't a clearly defined career track like that, try to think backward. And then as you are thinking backward, think about what do I need to do? Where do I need to be at that particular point in terms of results, in terms certainly of knowledge and education about the job? to be in that role with the company or to have achieved those things. And you just steadily work back to ultimately, what do I need to have done in six months? What do I need to have done at the end of one month from now? What do I need to have done within one week from now? And ultimately, what do I need to have done by the time I close up my computer, close up my laptop, turn off the lights in the office, drive home to the wife and the kids at the end of today in order to be further along? Mm, I like that. Let's talk a little bit about just the element of fear in this equation because again this idea of being a linchpin might scare people maybe it's the idea of uh you know not being perfect or needing all the things to be there not feeling like you're not the expert or who am i this idea of like imposter syndrome and it seems like seth also seth godin also references in his book about making a conscious effort in spite of your fears but let's just talk about how does somebody move past this uh, barrier of fear as they're becoming uh, putting out any type of media, whether that's a podcast or a book or a YouTube channel? They understand as a mentor who Seth has openly spoke about being inspired by, Zig Ziglar, talks about fear or talked about now that he's unfortunately passed away, but he talks about fear being false evidence appearing real. And I think that's a very important concept to understand as you're thinking about fear. And that idea of false evidence appearing real, you listen to other motivational speakers, they'll make the acronym something slightly different, you know, false evidence actually being real. You'll hear different wordings of it, but it's that same thing. And it even goes back as well before the motivational speaker people to Franklin Roosevelt, right? The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Will Smith talks about being afraid of being afraid. I heard a clip of him saying that. And it's understanding that your fear of, in this case, being a linchpin or of stepping out of line in a good way to try to demonstrate your authority and your to try to demonstrate thought leadership on your part, that's all in your head. And really, the only thing you have to be afraid of is just being afraid of doing it. I think another component of that, too, is understanding and being comfortable, if you can be comfortable, with the possibility and the results of not doing it. Think oh, about really Well, think about what it's going to look like and where you're going to be if you don't try to brand yourself or try to become indispensable to your company. I heard a great quote, just to paraphrase a little bit from Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he was talking about it in the sense of bodybuilding and lifting, but it's you don't want to get to that point. Again, I'm paraphrasing it but you don't want to lose essentially. And then think, if only I had trained harder. And it's the same thing. You don't want to be sitting necessarily in the office, getting your review 
your performance review, not getting the results that you want. And then think if only I had gone to that meetup event to speak and represent the company, or if only I had taken that initiative. You got to weigh that. And if you're comfortable with that risk, by all means, but just make sure that you're aware of the possibilities of inaction. I think that's great. Nick, in the context of putting out content, whatever that looks like, and maybe just specifically given the book space, since that's what you're an expert in, how does someone think about organizing their thoughts in such a way that they can actually put this out there? They adopt the standpoint taken from architecture, right? That form follows function. So the form of your book and the form of your ideas being conveyed should follow whatever the function of the book's going to be. So if the function, as we've talked earlier, is about getting that corner office, then your ideas should align with that. I'll give you an example from one of the books that, what types of books that we've done for people who are in the real estate space. In the real estate space, one of their goals, one of their functions of the book is to build credibility so they can raise money, raise capital. In that sense, then, the book is going to be structured in a way that conveys their expertise on real estate investing, conveys the fact that they have steady hands, if you will, when it comes to judging and sizing up opportunities, and also conveys the fact that they've done this before. In the sense of other businesses outside of real estate investing, the same kind of principles can apply, such as if you're trying to just attract customers for a particular business. Even in that case, you want to show your prospective customers or clients that you've got steady hands, that there's a specific method to the madness, if you will, in terms of how you think and how you run your business, and that you've done it for people before. And that's where, for example, client stories, client testimonials, case studies would be incorporated in the book as well. And in some of the best cases, even, you might even be able to cheat in a good way by making your book really just a client stories book. Have your clients do the work, essentially, of providing you with the stories, make them the hero, so to speak, to borrow a uh, borrow an idea from Donald Miller, building a story brand, right. make them the hero and let that be your book. The idea of form following function stands out. I think that's a good way for people to be thinking about it in terms of the, the content that they're producing. How do we think about the time management aspect of this, especially for busy professionals, the idea of, uh, gosh, I'm already slaving away just to accomplish my uh, job tasks or, and then spend time with my family when that allows. How do I think about making this an ongoing part of my week? You can think about it a couple of ways. One of the ways might be, how do I integrate it in? And when I say integrate, you can think as well about Jeff Bezos, I believe it was, has a great quote where he talks about work-life integration as opposed to work-life balance. What we can see here with integrating the book in, the book or whatever other content you're producing, integrate it in in the sense that, let's say you like to spend time with your family, your children and your wife or husband in that case, watching television or around the dinner table. How could you be developing aspects of your content there? Whether it's talking through ideas that you're going to bring in to whatever your finished product is, kind of workshopping it with your family members as you're sitting around eating dinner with them, getting their feedback or having them help you to bring the ideas further out 
mm. or sharing stories, kind of workshopping stories. That might be one way. So we, again, you're integrating it in. So yes, there may be some time and there probably will be some time when you're alone in the study or the office space of your home working on it, but you can be developing it outside of there with other people. So you're not just isolated like that. And so you're also doing it alongside other activities, having to spend overall less time. The other though, the other approach to this though, is for those people who um, are much more, for lack of a better phrase, maniacally focused. And these are the type A and proud type A people who like to just be overachievers. We often hear that phrase thrown around for those types. I think the right way to manage the time really is just to say, okay, my calendar is my time management device. When I put down one hour on the calendar, I defend that one hour mm. religiously. Mm. And during that one hour, every Saturday, I am producing this, whether it's banging out a book chapter, banging out a blog post, banging out a podcast episode, recording it with someone, and they just stick to that. And so your calendar, again, is your time management device. If it's on the calendar, it happens. Yeah, you're right. For people that you have to defend the calendar, sometimes it's saying no to some things to say yes to another. And that way, if you create some structure around it, that can give you some permission to spend the time on that activity. So long as it's uh, assuming that aligns with your goals and that's helping you move one step forward, then that can be, um, you don't have to necessarily feel bad about spending time on whatever that content creation activity is. There's also, while people are thinking about this, there's also another great resource I'd recommend. Uh, it's a book that came out a number of years back, maybe even around the same time as Lynchpin, though don't quote me on that. The book, though, is called Essentialism, and the author is Greg McCune. And the idea there is essentialism, the disciplined pursuit of less. And he does a great job in that book about helping people to really distill down to what their essential goals are and their essential objectives. So I think that for people, as they're thinking about becoming linchpins and they're thinking about really just stripping away all the extraneous things in their lives, that might be a very useful resource for them. Nick, this is so fun to talk about. Again, just especially in light of a post-COVID-19 world, what does that mean for how we're going to interact within our companies and working from home? How does that mean which businesses are going to flourish versus others? Being indispensable and offering something of value beyond just completing your job is just so, so, so important. And that could take shape in lots of different ways as we had talked about, maybe one of them being a book like you're an expert in. I think people need to really conquer the fears of not having this be perfect, understand that it's okay to be fearful, but still act even on top of that. They need to think about their goals, a form leading into function, and then just making sure that they create time for it. So we've just covered a ton. Is there anything else, Nick, that you think is important for people to think about as they're understanding what their journey is going to be in being indispensable in their career? Yeah, I think it comes back again to complement that point on fear which is just have more faith in yourself and give yourself some credit. I don't want to necessarily turn this into a rah-rah, you know, Tony Robbins kind of event, but really give yourself some credit and look at what's gotten you here and respect that and understand that that's valuable. And as well, related to that too, understand that as the saying goes, a man or a woman is never a hero in their own home. And what that saying means is that what you hold closely and what you experience regularly, you tend to take for granted. Whereas other people 
may hear something you say, or they may take a look at your background and what you bring to the table. And they may be, they may knock their socks off just hearing your insights. So think about that when you feel like you don't necessarily have something to contribute. And that could be contribute in the sense of, as we're talking about now, being a linchpin, or even just contribute in the sense of speaking up at a company meeting. When you're sitting there and you think you have something that would really add to the conversation, but you're not sure if it would be appropriate or right to say. Nick, thanks again for joining us today. For the people that are interested in maybe reaching out to you, given that you are the creator of the seven-hour book and have expertise there, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Sure. The best place for them would be to go to our website, contentcore.net, and that's spelled C-O-N-T-E-N-T-C-O-R-P-S.net, N-E-T, contentcore.net. I'll put that link in our show notes, Nick, so that people can go there. Is there a way to email you or a phone number? What's the best way for them to contact you? The website would be the best place to start. Nick, thanks again for your expertise and shining a light on this. This is so fun. And I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.